0: From the University of Cambridge, this is Election, the politics podcast. My name is David Runciman, and we're delighted to be back with you for a second season to discuss the state of British politics eight months on from last May's momentous election. We'll also be looking in depth at the US presidential election and at elections happening in other places, from Uganda to Ireland, to take the temperature of democracy around the globe. But a lot has happened since we were last with you, So today we're going to start with the UK. My special guest is Jackie Ashley, one of Britain's leading political commentators and now head of a Cambridge college, Lucy Cavendish, which offers places to women aged over 21 who are returning to higher education. I'll be asking her whether Jeremy Corbyn has a problem with women.
1: Corbyn comes from that pre-feminist era and his natural instinct would be not even to think about the women problem.
0: And whether the next election... And maybe the one after that are already in the bag for the Tories.
1: I disagree with you actually because I think what we are seeing in British politics is the pace of change is so rapid that although we think things are set for a very long time, they're not. I think if you'd said even six months before the election that Jeremy Corbyn would win it, you'd have been laughed out of court, and there suddenly he is.
0: First, I'm very pleased to say we're joined by our regular panel Helen Thompson, an expert on economics. Finbar Livesey on public policy, and Chris Brook on political theory. Last week, The Guardian published a detailed study of the state of the Labour Party membership since Corbyn was elected leader, trying to sort out whether he was really bringing in new members faster than he was driving out old ones. Their conclusion was that the incomers vastly outnumber the quitters, And in many parts of the country, Labour now has more members than it has for a generation. Some of these new members are young people getting involved in politics for the first time. Some are old Labour who quit under Blair. Between them, they're helping to move the party significantly to the left. Chris, what difference do you think this influx is likely to make to British politics? It's almost certainly going to make some difference. We're so
2: used over the last few decades to a pattern of politics where party memberships have declined, levels of party activism have declined, and the Labour Party is now heading in quite a different direction. A predictable consequence of having Corbyn in charge is that certain kinds of rich men who've donated large sums of money to the Labour Party, that money will dry up. So we're going to have a Labour Party that's much more dependent on activist Labour, and we don't yet know either how active these new members will be, whether they're angry people who want to make a point now, but they don't really want to get onto the doorstep, deliver a lot of leaflets, go to a lot of what are frequently quite boring meetings. The elephant in the room, I think, is the momentum organisation, because on the one hand, it presents itself as a mass movement, a democratic movement, a social movement. On the other hand, it doesn't have an internal democratic constitutional or organization yet. It's a brand name that seems to be controlled by one of
0: Corbyn's allies. And we need to see what he does with it. And when you say what he does with it, do you think Corbyn controls momentum? Or do you think that that may be something that spins out of his control?
2: I think that's exactly the right question to be asking. Um, you see that in when it comes to the question of deselections, that everyone I know on the Corbynista left relishes the prospect of having some serious constituency party fights to deselect uh, ostentatiously Blairite pro-war MPs and so on. Corbyn always says, no, let's not go there. But it's not clear whether he's just doing that to try and steady the ship before the tide of activist anger is unleashed, or before the necessary reselections that will happen when David Cameron pushes through his plan to reduce the size of the House of Commons.
0: So Helen, even before the tide of activist anger is unleashed, the Parliamentary Labour Party is clearly now at odds with the membership. Not all of them, but a significant chunk of them, four-fifths, nine-tenths maybe. And it's putting huge pressure on the way that the Labour Party operates in Parliament. What do you think is going to give first here? Are we going to have to wait for this deselection process to get underway for something really to start to happen? Or do you think things could happen within the Parliamentary Labour Party before that, preemptively? There's a lot of talk, but nothing ever seems to result from it about the possibility of moderate MPs breaking away in some sense.
3: I think that it's been made a lot more difficult for the um, moderate MPs by the evidence of just how big the increase in membership since the summer uh, has been. On the other hand, it's such a astonishing phenomenon to witness a parliamentary party in this kind of disarray in terms of having a, a leader of the opposition who s- takes one position in a debate of national security and the shadow foreign secretary taking an entirely different position and the leader of the opposition looking utterly contemptuous at him when he sits down. This is unprecedented
0: territory. Do you think the idea that sometimes muted is actually a fantasy that the majority of the parliamentary Labour Party could within Parliament set themselves up as some kind of separate entity, maybe not create a new party, but dissent within Parliament and therefore become the official opposition because there are more of them. Is there any way that they could, they're not going to get rid of Corbyn using the membership, is there any way they could play the parliamentary game and simply announce themselves as the majority in Parliament as Her Majesty's opposition?
3: I find it very, very difficult to believe that that can be a possibility under the conditions of parliamentary politics, because aside from anything else, it just looks absurd. And parties that look absurd, or double parties that look absurd, or a party in a shadow that looks absurd, or whatever uh, it is, whichever side that you're on is going to pay a very high price for that. So I I just can't
0: see a scenario in which that works. I think that this has to play itself out. Finbar, Helen mentioned the feature that I think everyone has noticed about the Labour Party under Corbyn that he can't hold the cabinet to a single line on some very big questions, most notably the intervention in Syria. But as others have pointed out, the Labour Party is not unique in this respect. David Cameron has concluded that he cannot hold his cabinet to a single line on the most important question he faces, which is the EU referendum. Is the Labour Party just an extreme version of forces that are at work for all main political parties, and maybe not just in this country, which is a tension between the views of the membership and some of the more populist views that inform their worldview, and the more conventional centrist
4: views of their leaders. Are the Tories somewhere on the same spectrum as Labour? I think that the Tories are in a much more comfortable position in regard to the tensioning. I think it is something that you're seeing in the UK, you're seeing in the US, you're seeing in other countries. There's a moment where the voting public, the activists, all the way through to the elected politicians have started to distrust the pattern that was set over the last number of decades. And essentially, the question has been asked, do we want to run our politics in this way? And Corbyn and what's happened in the Labour Party is both an extreme version of that, but also chaotically out of control at the same time. For me, the schism around remaining within the EU, I think Cameron's doing something slightly different. I think he's trying to pull a thorn early, and at the same time, muting some of the voices from across the aisle because they have to agree with them to stay within the EU. As the Beckett report said earlier this week, the Labour Party need 94 gains to have a majority of any kind in the next parliament. They have a tiny number of seats that are within 3,000 in terms of the majority for the Conservatives, and they are nowhere in Scotland. If you do the math, even with these boundaries there's no chance of a Labour government in the next parliament. So I think Cameron understands the tensions, understands he actually has two parliaments to get this sorted, and is allowing the party to work this out over time. Of course, it won't be him who sorts it over
0: the two parliaments, but he is, I agree, managing the process. I and mean, I sometimes think the analogy, and people who support Jeremy Corbyn hate this, because I've tried it on them, that for the Tory party to be in an analogous position as Labour, they would have had to have elected Bill Cash or someone like that as their leader. And it's not outside of the bounds of possibility. If the Tory party was stupid enough to put Bill Cash as a candidate to the members under the wrong circumstances, who knows? But as things stand, they're nowhere near that position. And whatever happens in the Conservative leadership election after Cameron steps down, Bill Cash or the equivalent of Bill Cash will not be one of the two people who goes to the membership. And that is a huge difference. So the same forces are at work. But for those forces to result in a Corbyn election puts the Labour Party, you're nodding at me, I take Mm -hmm. it you agree in a completely different space.
4: There is no comparison, because both of the way in which the Conservatives have managed the process and retained some greater degree of control over who will go to the membership, but also just the dynamics that they feel having returned to power. Much of the time, There's a conversation which says the Conservatives feel like they are the natural party of power. And you get that sense from them now that they have moved out of coalition again. They're back where they feel they should be. And even with the disagreements over things such as remaining in the EU, you're not going to get to a position that explodes the party to the same degree that Corbyn and his election has exploded the Labour Party. And Chris, one of the things that
0: came out in the Guardian report, and it's been much discussed about Corbyn supporters, is are they actually serious about power or are they interested in something else? And some of them were quoted in that report as saying, essentially, if we're going to lose, we might as well lose and go down ideologically pure, rather than sullied as we have been in the past. You said you speak to quite a few people who are on that side of the divide. It's really hard for me to get a sense because these are just snapshots It seems implausible to me that they're not interested in power. Are they potentially interested in other kinds of power? Are they not just thinking about electoral defeat and thinking about the ways in which they can exercise power, not outside of the parliamentary system, but via alternative routes? I think that's right. I mean,
2: in the background to the Labour Party's turn to Corbyn is a judgment that a great many members made last year that they couldn't see any of the four candidates for the leadership of the party, Andy Burnham, Yvette Cooper, Liz Kendall or Jeremy Corbyn, actually winning a general election. And I think the Beckett report helps to bring out in some ways the soundness of that judgment when you think about um, how none of the candidates seemed much more effective than Ed Miliband as a leader figure coupled with, as Finbar has just mentioned, the size of the electoral mountain that Labour has to climb. So there is a fatalism across the Labour Party more generally, not just in the Corbyn camps. And one of the reasons the leaders of the more Blairite, more right-wing group in the Parliamentary Party, one of the reasons they don't seem to have much credibility is they seem to have this fantastic idea that if only they can become leader of the party again, the nation will rally to them. But on the point about uh, Corbyn's supporters, that's right. There's a strong view that Labour should be a social movement and not just a political party. A lot of the support for Corbyn does come from uh, people who've been active in movements like Stop the War, which try to exercise extra parliamentary pressure on Uh, The political system. That optimism looks optimistic to me. It seems to me that we live in a highly centralised country where parliamentary politics are absolutely critical to wielding power in this country. Uh, And I'm curious as to quite what the pro-social movement Corbyn supporters think is going to happen, even if things go reasonably well for them. But you're absolutely right, Uh, There is a turning away from parliamentary politics,
0: and we'll have to wait to see what actually results. Thanks to Helen, Finbar, and Chris. Now to my conversation with Jackie Ashley. I started by asking her whether the Labour Party under Corbyn was one she recognised, or had it become something new.
1: Well, in many ways, it's a mix. I mean, I go back to the old days of the 1970s and 80s, which is when I first started to get interested in Labour Party politics. And then there was a very strong left wing element. Uh, Tony Benn was the, the, the character then that everyone was very concerned about. Jeremy Corbyn was but a very minor, a bag carrier to him. Um, And in those days, there was this genuine feeling that the left was going to take over the Labour Party. And indeed, they did come very close.
0: Driven by the membership.
1: Driven by the membership. Um, Interestingly, in those days, it was the trade unions who were the break on that. Some of the moderate trade unions, the big ones like the um, general municipal workers, they were the ones that seemed to be fighting off the, uh, the grassroots membership. So in one sense, it feels a bit like the same old days. Um, But in another sense, I think we do have something different, partly as a result of social media uh, and the new times we have where people who wouldn't necessarily, I think, in the 70s and 80s, been drawn into Labour Party politics are now getting interested because they're sort of hearing about Jeremy Corbyn on Facebook and on Twitter. And it seems quite exciting. And he seems to be listening and he's sucking his thumb at uh, the political establishment, which people are loving. So I think this element of it is new. And I'm certainly finding talking to Labour MPs, they are all quite surprised. Surprised at if you like the passion of these new members who are coming in, saying they're fed up not being listened to, they're fed up with the old regime. Jeremy Corbyn they see it as a breath of fresh air.
0: The, the line you'd get from the Corbyn people is that he has brought a whole raft of young people into politics who weren't interested in politics. The other way of putting it is he's brought a whole group of people into politics who are basically anti-politics. I mean, they are primarily driven by the things that they hate. And they want to tear stuff down. It's not so clear they're there for the long haul to do the hard work, the policy making and so on. I mean, do you think that there's a risk that what he's doing is actually opening the Labour Party up to people who are primarily against the way that the Labour Party has done politics for most of its history?
1: Well, I don't think they're totally against democratic politics, which seems to be the implication of your question, because not, otherwise not why do they join the Labour Party? And I don't think they're straightforward entryists in the way that we used to have um, Militant and the Socialist Workers' Party and Socialist Action coming, trying to come in and take over the Labour Party back in the 1980s. I think these are people who are anti-Westminster politics, but I'm not necessarily sure I'd call them anti-politics. I think quite a lot of them do have a strong sense of a political agenda and want to change but I think a lot of people have been very frustrated by the seeming inability to change very much. Um, What I find surprising is there's therefore so little support for any kind of PR, because as you know, we had the the referendum recently and it was absolutely knocked out of court. So people seem to be in this this bind of wanting to be more involved, wanting to be able to get beyond the two-party system and have more of a say, and yet at the same time they're not really sure what the answer is, unless it's Jeremy Corbyn. Um, which personally I don't think it is, because although he's attracting lots of new members, the polls are looking pretty dire for him.
0: They are, and of course for the parliamentary party, that makes them extremely anxious. Mm. And we do seem to be set on some kind of collision course between the membership and the parliamentary party. We don't know how it's going to play out. A lot of people are hoping the people who are unhappy with Corbyn's leadership, that the May elections are going to be a breakpoint of some kind, that he will collide with electoral reality. The complication is that the election everyone will notice then is the mayoral election in London, and Labour probably at present are the favourites to win that. Do you think it's realistic to think at some point between now and 2020, there will be a kind of collision with electoral reality so that whatever hopes people have put into Corbyn, it's possible for the sceptics to say they're misplaced because this guy's not going to deliver?
1: I think it's possible, but I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. I think come May, uh, I don't think the local elections will be quite as bad as the moderates in the Labour Party are hoping. <laughs> hoping in one sense, so they can try well, to get rid of Jeremy Corbyn. Well, they
0: can't come out and um, say it.
1: They can't come out and say it, but that's what they're all desperately hoping for. I don't think it'll be so bad. I mean, look at the recent Oldham West by-election. That was nothing like as bad as everyone was expecting. I think there is a general feeling at the moment that although Labour people might not all like Jeremy Corbyn, they don't like the the Conservatives either. The Liberal Democrats are nowhere. In a way, I think Labour will still pick up quite a few votes. Um, and as you say, I think the more important contest is the London mayor. And I think Sadiq Khan, who is no Corbyn puppet, as he keeps trying to stress... Um, will win that election, and I think that will be able to be claimed as a victory there by Jeremy Corbyn. See, Labour's won, even with me, Jeremy as leader. And Sadiq is not so anti-Jeremy Corbyn. It's not as though Tessa Jowell had won the mayoral uh, nomination, in which case she could have claimed, I think, legitimately that she was no Corbynista, it was her victory. I think Steve Kahn is in a slightly different position. Yes, he's not a Corbynista, but he's more on that side of the party.
0: And of course, in the Oldham case, the victor could claim and the the anti-Corbyn people could claim this was nothing to do with Corbyn. But in London, and London is Corbyn's power base as well, it'll be very hard to separate out victory from him. The other thing that's going to happen is that this will collide with the EU referendum if it's going to happen this summer too. And already the word is coming out from the Goldsmith camp that they're extremely anxious that the Tory party is going to be consumed with infighting or at least placing itself on one or other side of that line. And no one in the Conservative party is really going to be thinking much about the London mayoral election. So it could be that this collision with reality has to be put off. But the question is to when? Because i agree with you if it if they wait till 2020 it will be a serious collision with electoral reality so what's the break point between now and the general election for the people who think that corbyn is leading the party to electoral Disaster.
1: I think it's very, very hard to predict. I think at the moment all they can do is watch and wait and see, A, how the actual election results go, and B, how the polls go. We've already had a little bit of a spat of people um, leaving after the shadow cabinet was reorganised and some people left in disgust and dismay. I don't think there's enough of them, even if they all decided en masse to do it, to still bring down Corbyn. And I think he's all, he can also still say he's got the support of the party out there in the country. Um, there's all sorts of different things being plotted by different degrees of moderate MPs. But I don't think, and I think this is what should worry them, that is not one coherent plan around one coherent or even two or three coherent potential other leaders at the moment. Everyone is doing their own little thing. There's groups in Cambridge, there's groups in London, there's groups up in the north, all plotting different things and all thinking they're the future. I don't
0: I- know about the plots <laughs> in Cambridge, I should say, so maybe we can get onto that.
1: that. <laughs> oh, they're all terribly secret. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but they need a figurehead, right? They
1: need a figurehead, and, and I think politics no one, is still about leadership. Yeah, and no one can agree as to who the next leader is, and I think that's really a part of their problem. It's all very well saying Jeremy's hopeless, but actually Jeremy does have quite a bit of charisma, and there is no one on the other side yet that one can think of. I know some people think Tristram Hunt is the answer. I'm not sure. Dan Jarvis. I'm not sure. Keir Starmer again. I'm not sure. Lot of quite bright women, but not one in particular that you think is going to actually lead the way. So there Is just nobody, and David Miliband may well think he will sail back to save the Labour Party, but I don't see that happening either. No, and with that
0: one, you need so many ifs to come right along the way. The, The thing I was very struck by in the Syria vote was when you looked at who voted against Corbyn, it included almost all the people who the moderates, as you call them, might want to put up, bar one. The one person who voted with Corbyn was Keir Starmer. And given the problem that the moderates have is that the membership is going to decide this. They're not going to be able to change the rules. And and so much of the anger of the membership is still driven by the Iraq war and by foreign policy concerns. I just wonder whether actually that vote will, in retrospect, be a pretty decisive moment. I find it hard to see the members voting for anyone who did not support the Corbyn line there. Which, to my mind, leaves Keir Starmer. And I don't know whether he was thinking about this when he voted <laughs> oh, or not.
1: surely not.
0: No, because um, uh, he's a lawyer, not a politician. But <laughs> uh, it leaves him in a very potentially strong position.
1: I think it does. Um, I wouldn't underestimate his ambition either. I think there's no doubt in Keir Starmer's mind that Keir Starmer could be another leader of the Labour Party. I think that is not... A hopeless idea, certainly. And I think that that vote, as you say, was very, very carefully calculated. I don't think that was just chance at all.
0: But it still leaves us with the problem, you can imagine the people and you can imagine the reasons, but you still need the event. And I I agree with you, where we are now, it's hard to see the event. And we're also in this completely different political climate. I always think with British politics at the moment, we should try and imagine what it would be like if we didn't have fixed term parliaments where there would be much more raw speculation both on the Tory side and the Labour side because an election might come at any point. Um, This is a government with a tiny majority. We know the Prime Minister is standing down. But the 2020, it's a long way off.
1: And so many things can happen by then. That's the other thing. We could be out of Europe. We could be into another war. There's so many things. And we I, will I think, have a
0: new prime minister.
1: And we will have a new prime minister. So I think it's, it's very hard at this stage to say, oh, it will be this event in two years time. But I sort of also think there will be something because there is such bitterness and anger and hatred now between the two sides of the Labour Party. I mean, they seem to hate each other much more than they hate the Conservatives.
4: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
3: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
0: So can I ask you about another potential divide within the Corbyn Labour Party? This week at Prime Minister's Questions it was very striking that the Labour front bench was almost entirely women. And this is partly because he has reshuffled his shadow cabinet a few times, and it's better than it was when he started. But there is still a view among a significant number of people that Corbyn or the people around Corbyn have got a problem with women, partly because they come from that hard left, late 70s, early 80s world, which was in many ways pre-feminist. And they're the same guys, and they are all guys. And if it's not Corbyn, we're talking about Ken Livingston or John McDonnell. Do you think the Corbyn project has got a problem with women?
1: Absolutely it does. But interestingly, so have all past Labour leaders. Ed Miliband, rather to my surprise, turned out to have a very big problem with women. All his inner team were men. Uh, Gordon Brown certainly had a massive problem with women. Tony Blair wasn't quite so bad, but he wasn't great. But yes, you're right, Corbyn comes from that pre-feminist era. uh, And his natural instinct would be not even to think about the women problem. I'm very upset at the way Harriet Harman, who was Labour's deputy leader for so many years, was treated by successive Labour leaders. They all tried to marginalise her. They all made it clear they weren't really interested in what she had to say. And now, of course, we don't even have a woman deputy, which I think is an absolute disgrace. But people don't really seem to mind very much amongst the Corbynistas. And when he picked his shadow cabinet at first, it was very clear that he just wasn't even thinking about gender balance.
0: And you say the Corbynistas don't seem to mind about it, but there is potentially a big split there which is the split between this influx of new people many of them young fresh to politics very 21st century and the core of the Corbyn project which comes out of essentially the old GLC of the 1980s do you not think that there's a potential for some breakdown of relations there and you're seeing it within momentum and other things as well that they have completely different perspectives on maybe not some of their political objectives but the kind of social objectives that go with political change.
1: Very definitely I think momentum is very key to this the split you're seeing then is really essentially that generational one between the, those old guard and the, the
0: organisers and yeah. the dreamers. Kind yeah of thing.
1: exactly and I think that does have potential I mean the only thing I will say is that while they seem to be doing well while they've got control of the party they will probably for now manage to uh, sit on those differences for a while because their bigger differences are with the old Blairites or moderates, call them what you will. Many um,
0: of whom are themselves women and, and get the misogynist hate online. Yes,
1: indeed. Yes, indeed. It, it, I mean, most of, most of the women, I would say, who are sort of near the top of the party do tend to be on that wing rather than on the Corbyn Easter wing. Um, as to the new members, that's more interesting. Again, I have no evidence of this. and I haven't looked at the figures, but anecdotally, talking to MPs about their new members that they're all slightly thinking, oh my goodness, about. Um, They say they think the majority are men.
0: Just to broaden it out a little bit more, we both, I think, instinctively feel that if Corbyn does lead Labour into 2020, it's very hard to see Labour winning. Um, And even if Corbyn doesn't, Maybe the brand won't have been tarnished, but there will certainly be quite a lot of rebuilding work to done to regain the trust of those centre ground voters on whom, under a first past the post system, we know British elections depend. Now, the real doomsters among the Labour moderates are saying we shouldn't even be thinking 2025 is realistic. Maybe 2030 will be led by someone who's not even in Parliament we've never even heard of and so on. On the Tory side, there is clearly a sense that they are probably looking at 10 years in power and possibly longer. Anything can happen, but it looks like a safe bet. Is that good or bad for the Tory party? I mean, it's good because they're the party of power, but a party under a two-party system that is pretty confident that it's, there's almost nothing that could go sufficiently wrong to let the other side in runs some serious risks itself, not just of complacency, but of getting it fundamentally wrong. And do, you, do you think the Tories would rather Labour was a bit more electable?
1: Uh, no, I don't think they would. I think they like being in power. But um, I, I disagree with you, actually, about the, the next election and the one after that, because I think what we are seeing in British politics is the pace of change is so rapid that although we think things are set for a very long time, they're not. I I think if you'd said even six months before the election that Jeremy Corbyn would win it, if you remember, he had to be sort of squeezed onto the ballot paper by people doing him a favour, you'd have been laughed out of court and there suddenly he is. If you'd have said sort of five years ago that Labour in Scotland, which had dominated for decades, would be wiped out, again, you'd have been laughed out of court, but it happened and it happened very quickly. So I think what we're finding now is people can change their political allegiances really quite quickly on the basis of actually not that much... uh, a good personality or a particular policy. So I don't think necessarily it's all hopeless. I I think if I was taking a bet, I wouldn't think that Labour would win the next election, but I certainly wouldn't rule it out for the one after.
0: And that's in a way where the five-year fixed-term parliament rule, but also an unreformed first-past-the-post system, seems more and more to collide with political reality. Everything's moving so fast except that, which has got slower, and everything's changing except the electoral system, which if you'd asked me 10, 15 years ago, would we still have first-past-the-post, I would have said no, it's going to break because the pressures on it of parties becoming more divided and there being more minor parties is eventually going to force something to give. But it's nowhere on the horizon. No one's talking about repealing the Fixed-Term Parliament Act, and no one's talking about PR. So I still have this kind of feeling that everything seems to be changing, except British general elections, which are producing their traditional results, which is why I am more uh, cautious than you about thinking that Labour has a chance.
1: Yeah, but look what happened in Scotland. I mean, that happened so quickly. A huge number of seats, Labour lost. True, and and under a first-past-the-post system. Um, I'm just saying we just don't know, I think, because things are changing so quickly. But, yes, I do totally agree that it is bizarre there's not more discussion about changing the the first-past-the-post system and, indeed, the fixed-term parliaments, which I don't think has been a particular success. Um, I think everyone agrees that the last year and even the last two years before the election are really a bit of a waste of time. Not much gets done. Everyone just starts electioneering much, much too early and end up looking like the Americans. Um, But I can't see any pressure, as you say, I can't see any pressure coming for a change in the electoral system now because it was so resoundingly defeated last time. And of course, it's not in the interests of even the Labour Party and certainly not the Conservative Party.
0: And probably the things that will trigger if there's going to be significant constitutional change. The thing that is new is we're in the era of referendums, the Scottish referendum, the EU referendum, possibly another Scottish referendum. And that could change everything. Scotland leaves, we leave the EU. Presumably then all sorts of questions about the Westminster system will be up for grabs again.
1: Yeah, I think that's what I mean when I say things are changing so quickly. I think it's highly likely, actually, that in by the next, time of the next election, we, we could leave Europe. I hope we don't, but I think it's not inconceivable. Uh, I think it's very likely there'll be a second Scottish referendum and I think the Scots will go this time. So yes, that will change things. How we don't know, we can't begin to know, but it will shake things up so much that there will be changes.
0: So finally, just to say something about America, because we're also in this series going to be looking at the American elections, as you say, it goes on a long time. We're only (laughs) going to be talking about the primaries. They haven't even started yet. And it feels like it's been going on forever. Uh, Hillary Clinton is still by some distance, the favourite, but she's not as much of a favourite as she was even a couple of weeks ago. Bernie Sanders is a very interesting character because Mm -hmm. could he be the American Corbyn? We don't know. Just speculating, since Hillary is the favourite, the thought of a Hillary Clinton presidency, does it fill you with a kind of feeling of excitement and historic change because (laughs) she's a she or... It's Hillary Clinton, and uh, she's been around for a long time, and she comes with a lot of baggage. What's what's your...?
1: I, I'm, I would be very excited. I have to say, I'm not sure she'll get it. I think Sanders is coming up fast, and I wouldn't be surprised if he doesn't pip her at the end. But I would be very excited if Hillary got it, because I think it would say such a lot about not women, but older women who, um, as you can probably tell, I'm not very young myself, I'm quite young, but um, I think old women in particular are marginalised in politics, in the media, in uh, in industry, and I would just be thrilled to see someone of that age uh, showing they've still got the vitality, which I think she has, and the energy, which I think she has, to do the job. And the only other woman I can think of, anything like that position, is Angela Merkel, and uh, it would be great, I think, if there were two of them.
0: When Obama came into office, there was also a lot of excitement about the man, but also about the symbolism. And the symbolism is still extraordinarily powerful. But I think there's also a fairly widespread feeling that the symbolism maybe didn't amount to that much in terms of political change and the change in race relations in the United States and so on. It's been a pretty brutal period, his presidency, in those respects. Do you have any sense that there might be a similar kind of disappointment that this symbolic moment in the end symbolism in politics doesn't amount to much i'm sorry to sound so that's sounding very negative isn't
1: it but no you're right um obama's election didn't change that much did it um with regards to race in america With women, it might be different. I don't know. I think there is generally a feeling, both here and in America, that women over 50 or 55 are sort of past it. And if you have someone who's President of the United States, then surely it's hard to argue they're past it. I remain an optimist, even though um, I may have to become a realist.
0: Many thanks to Jackie Ashley. You're listening to Election, the Cambridge Politics Podcast. We're going to be talking a lot about the US election in the coming weeks. When we covered the British election last year, it was happening all around us, but for this one, we're definitely coming at it from more of a distance. So we thought we'd start by asking people on the streets of London how much it was registering with them from an ocean away. Do people in Britain care at this stage about who might be the next American president? A lot, because it'll affect England. I
1: think the Donald Trump thing has gone further than anyone would ever have thought it would have. And I think that Hillary Clinton is not as cool as anyone thought. Out of 10, 10, because it would impact the whole world. Personally, I I would prefer Obama was president again, but obviously that can't happen.
3: The reason I don't care about politics is because it's all corrupt and they don't care about us. The lower
1: class, the middle class, etc. So I don't care about them. A lot. I am from the Middle East. Uh, I'm English, but I was born in Iran. So uh, foreign policy matters an awful lot to me. I hope that the American people will really wake up and realise that what's best for America is uh, Hillary Clinton.
3: Yeah, I care quite a lot. For me, I just think the uh, level of conflict in the Middle East could have an impact on the UK should the US become more involved. Well, the last election, Obama still carried the momentum from the first election, so I think he was a in to get re-elected. felt like a wave of positive change, a lot more hope. This time there's less hope.
1: About 80%, because you don't want Donald Trump in power. His views on not allowing Muslims into the country is not empowering to bring peace. People who are, say, Syria, they're fleeing for a reason, right? So every country, if they can, should take the refugees
0: in.
4: Not a lot. Don't affect me much. A same clown in a different suit. <laughs>
0: <laughs> now back to our panel. Helen, we heard there what I think is the general view outside the US. Only two people are really registering. This election is either about Hillary or it's about the Donald. And that comes with the implication that the Democrats are having a sensible race and the Republicans are having a crazy one. Is that how it seems to you? I think you could argue it's the
3: other way around. I wouldn't want to say that the Democrat race is um, crazy. I think that the Republican race has certain advantages. One of its advantages that's become clearer as time has gone on is actually that there are so many of them. Because in a a point when you're having at least partially anti-politics election, then actually having what looks like a Democratic debate gives, I think, the party certain advantages, particularly when one of those candidates is generating a lot of entertainment value and attention. I think the other problem directly for the Democrats themselves is the kind of race that they're having. In this election of anti-politics, anti the donor class in American politics, the Democrats have their front runner, probably the symbol of establishment politics, someone with close ties to Wall Street, someone who is also being investigated by the FBI and is associated with some of the worst foreign policy problems of the Obama presidency. This isn't a very good place for the Democrats to have got themselves into. The only alternative to Hillary, who has been you know, has seen her national lead cut by about two-thirds over the last month, is somebody who is essentially too left-wing to be elected as American
0: president. So her rival, Bernie Sanders, you say he couldn't be elected American president. Do you still think he could be the Democratic nominee? Could he do, to draw the analogy, which has been drawn, there are lots of reasons why it doesn't quite stand up, but could he do a Corbyn here?
3: No, I don't think so. I think that it's quite possible that he will win at least one, if not both, of the opening contests in Iowa and New Hampshire. But as soon as things switch to South Carolina, And you get the large African-American vote and they think things become much more difficult for him. But he can continue to do a lot of damage to Hillary Clinton. I think particularly from what's coming directly from him about her relationship with Wall Street and her relationship with the donor class in American politics will damage Hillary Clinton, whether she ends up as a nominee or not.
0: Okay, so you don't believe it's going to happen, but I still want to ask you just because it's fun to speculate. If it was Sanders versus Trump, who would win? I would go for, I would say,
3: probably Trump, but I wouldn't...
0: It's left you almost speechless. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) The New Yorker had a piece on this a couple of days ago, and to paraphrase, they said, if it is Sanders versus Trump, and they were taking that pretty seriously as a possibility, one of the ironies is it would be two angry old men from New York, one from Queens, one from Brooklyn, And it would be a bit like listening to two angry old men from New York ranting at each other on the subway for a couple of months. So we have that to look forward to, but possibly not. Chris, did you enjoy the reappearance this week of Sarah Palin on the campaign trail coming out to Stump for Trump? It was a remarkable moment.
2: Um, If you look at the video If you listen to the audio clips that have been playing on the radio, it really is quite unhinged. It's an accelerated uh, version of what Sarah Palin used to be. She looks as if she's making it up on the spot. And it has that high-energy populism for which she became famous eight years ago. It's a remarkable speech to be exposed to, and I haven't yet fully processed it. I suspect Sarah Palin is a busted flush that uh, she's yesterday's story and this won't matter a great deal. Uh, The kind of people who like that kind of right-wing populism, hyper-aggressive militarism, these people are already leaning strongly towards Trump. Maybe there's a constituency of uh, evangelical voters uh, who will be receptive
0: to Palin's endorsement of Trump. But as mad oratory, it's a moment. We are going to, in the course of this series, get into some of the detailed demographics, though we hope we won't drown in it. When I've been reading about Trump's rallies, I was reminded a little bit of Palin in 2008, actually, because people who go along, most of us have just been exposed to the sound bites. Donald Trump does say some pretty wild things. And if you just cut and paste them together, it does look pretty unhinged. People who go for the full performance over an hour or two or more say that cumulatively, as he builds and as he puts these random things together with sequences of actually quite well argued and charismatic oratory, it's much more impressive. And the same thing was true of people who went to hear Sarah Palin in 2008. I've always remembered the line of a New York Times reporter who came back from the field in 2008 and said, There is a great orator in this campaign, and his, his, her name, it's not Obama it's Sarah Palin, because in person, cumulatively, as she builds, it gets to you. Now, we haven't been exposed to Trump in the flesh. And obviously, the Palin thing didn't work electorally. But do you think Trump has more than the people that we heard in that box
4: pop could possibly get from an ocean away? He's got far more. Um, he has a background which gives him an entertainment quality and an entertainment value, which is high above all of the other candidates on the trail. He knows how to work a room of. Two people up to a room of 20,000 people and as you say over a longer time he does build and he does get under the skin of the audience and try and feel where they're going and work with them he doesn't get to be this far into the campaign he doesn't get to be this far into the polls without having that native ability and that charismatic ability does that translate into being a good candidate no does that translate into being a good presidential possibility absolutely not but when people discount him, as you say, just from the sound bites, they had better be very, very careful. And of course, the
0: other populist candidate who seemed to be riding high a couple of months ago, Ben Carson, has fizzled into nothing. And I think every American political commentator has been astonished by Trump's staying power. But Helen, something similar is true of Sanders in the sense that, particularly after the first debate with Hillary Clinton, it was thought that she had seen him off and he's still there and he is snapping at her heels. So there's something more than just the candidates going on here. We are talking about on both sides waves of populism that are extraordinarily hard to beat back and threaten to swamp both parties. Now, Sanders as a candidate has very different qualities from uh, Donald Trump the word from people who've been to his rallies, if the word from the Trump rallies is that they're more fun than you'd think, the word from the Sanders rallies is that they're less fun than you would think. It's a lot of fun being with 20,000 excited students weeping and rending their garments, but what's going on on the stage is pretty dry stuff. Do you think there's any way that that kind of seriousness, as opposed to the entertainment you get from Trump, could translate outside of his core constituency? Is there any appetite in this new anti-politics age for more seriousness about politics?
3: I think in principle, possibly yes, but something that hasn't so much been commented on, I think at least in British discussion of the Trump phenomenon, is its relationship to foreign policy problems of the Obama presidency. And if you, if you look at some of the best constructed passages that Trump uses, they are a critique of that policy. And although there was a clear opportunity for Sanders to go down that road because Hillary Clinton is a, obvious person to attack for the very same reasons. He's not, I think, ultimately been willing enough to do that. And so the seriousness of purpose that he is showing is confined to a set of issues that isn't broad enough to tap into the complex set of emotions and fears playing themselves out in American politics at the moment.
0: Next week, we're going to have a much more detailed discussion about American foreign policy. And obviously, one of the questions that arises, not just in American politics, but in democratic politics more generally, is the extent to which voters when they have to choose factor in foreign policy? Or is it all about the economy? And in relation to Corbyn, just to come back to him at the end, clearly, where Corbyn is completely out of kilter with what looks like mainstream British public opinion is on some of the foreign policy questions and foreign policy positions that he adopts in relation not just to terrorism, but in relation to Russia, and Putin, and so on. So just to finish with this, and I'll just go around all of you quickly. When you look at these populist candidates, their populism is fueled primarily, I think, by economic factors, by questions to do with changing social patterns, the, the labour force and so on. But they're all candidates for a role where foreign policy plays a very important part. Starting with you, Helen, do you think in the end foreign policy is the thing that is going to undo them?
3: I think foreign policy will certainly contribute significantly to undoing Corbyn not least because of the fact it's one thing that means that the parliamentary situation is absolutely impossible with the foreign policy situation and the fact that clearly for various members of his shadow cabinet the trident and the EU questions are red lines I think that takes it into that's what produces the chaos.
0: Finbar in the States one of the questions is always asked about the president is do you want him or her with his or her finger on the button? I mean, is this the thing that where populism runs up against the kind of hard political reality for a national electorate?
4: I'm afraid to say for this cycle, I don't think that that's the case. I think that foreign policy as fear is playing into Trump's narrative, and he's able to use it in that narrative to his advantage. And so that standard question of you and the nuclear codes, I don't think works in this cycle. So Chris, Sanders,
0: Trump, Corbyn, the anti-establishment candidates, they're they're riding a wave of resentment still for many people about the Iraq war, which is one of the things that these populists have in common. How far can that kind of resentment take them?
2: Public opinion in both Britain and America tolerated the war and at some moments was broadly supportive of the war. But an awful lot of the people who opposed the war have that as a firm and unchanging opinion, and it shapes to this day the judgments they make of politicians. Trump has been blunt that the American foreign policy over the last decade has been the waste of upwards of a trillion dollars. He can speak very clearly on the matter uh, in a way that draws a very strong contrast with the various circumlocutions and evasions that the mainstream political class that is thoroughly implicated in these wars are able to do. So there's potential there. With regard to whether these issues will damage Corbyn electorally, I worry that that's an overdetermined question. I don't think, even if foreign policy weren't a potential vote loser for Corbyn, I still think he's very, very unlikely to win an election. But if things go very, very badly for the political centre, the political mainstream, that world of New Labour and the Cameron Conservatives over the next few years. Yes, something remarkable could happen. We really shouldn't be complacent about the ability of mainstream political analysis to be confident
0: about what's to come. Thanks, as always, to Helen, Finbar and Chris, to our special guest, Jackie Ashley, and to our new production team of Catherine Carr, Barry Colfer and Lizzie Presser. Next week, I'll be in conversation with one of America's best known foreign policy analysts and public commentators, Anne-Marie Slaughter, to talk about America's place in the world and what it might mean to finally have a woman president. Do please join us then, and do visit our new website to find a host of new features, including extra clips, blogs, and a chance to let us know what you think. We'd love to hear from you. Just search for Polis Election Podcast. My name is David Runciman and this has been the Cambridge University Podcast election.